Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Eastern Approaches podcast. This is episode number five already, already up to number five. Um, I'm Andrew Valone, and I'm coming to you from Koper, Slovenia. And Ben Curtis, where exactly are you in Prague right now? <laughs> yeah, so I am now in the neighborhood of Vršovice, which if anybody's listening, ever been to Prague, it's a little bit east southeast of the historic center, though it's historic in its own right, 19th century. I lived here 20 years ago, um, and I'm back in the neighborhood now checking out like, ah, you know, what, is, this, is this where I might want to stay for the long term? But it's a nice hilly neighborhood, lots of um, uh, 19th century kind of grand uh, apartment buildings, and some not so grand 20th century communist style apartment buildings too. So, you know, it's, it's got the whole palette. Well, you know, it, it, it makes those other 19th century buildings probably stand out a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, like, true. Yeah. It's like if, if, if everyone if everyone's beautiful, then no one's beautiful. So that's exactly right. That's the, that's the problem in my entire life It's just like, God, I am so good looking that how, how could I how could I even compare? I don't know. That makes no sense. You're like, hey, Andrew, uh, how about you come over here and, uh, <laughs> and, and get next to me for this photo shoot? Thanks, buddy. Exactly. Mm hmm. <laughs> Uh, so what's 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 on the docket for today's episode, Mr. Curtis? So today we're going to do a bit of a deep dive into the empires that have shaped Central and Eastern Europe, our part of the world. And this is a huge potential topic, but we're going to look at what are the major empires that at one point or another ruled over this part of Europe. And we'll also talk a bit about what have their influences been historically? And I will also be talking uh, more on a personal level about uh, the pros and some of the cons of starting out as a traveler later in life. So um, a lot of people start out, you know, when they go to college, they take a year abroad or things like that. So 19, 20, something like that. I didn't start traveling until I was was 30. So I've reflected back on like, what were the advantages of actually waiting much longer to, to start on the whole travel thing. So I'll, I'll kind of dive into some personal notes and have some stories of, uh, you know, how I observe things at the age of 30 and how I probably would have looked at, at things quite differently if I did this when I was 20. Right. So let's talk about empires. Not the Empire Strikes Back, though in some ways maybe they do because there's still a lot of influence of these um, former polities that ruled over this part of the world. Still a lot of influence in many ways today. Um, because I am a historian and political scientist, this is the kind of stuff that I think about a lot. And I think it's interesting for the traveler because you can definitely see with your eyes um, some of the imprints of empire. But then when you dig a little bit deeper, if you understand deeper, which is what we want to help you understand today, then you understand like, ah, these empires le left traces that you can't just see with your eyes, but they actually helped shape societies and cultures and that kind of stuff. So that's what we're going to talk about. Um, first, the major empires that ruled over the part of the world that we are interested in. And I'll go kind of chronologically and tell you a little bit about like the actual geographic geographic geography of these places, but Andrew is going to kind of fill in some of the blanks on that. Um, you got to start off with where 
Western empires pretty much start off, and that is the Western Roman Empire. So, you know, based in Rome, uh, ruled uh, most of Europe, though not all. Um, and dates we're talking about 27 BCE, BCE is what people say instead of BC these days, so before Common Era, um, to 476 traditionally dated in Common Era. Um, so, you know, we're all familiar, I think, with the Roman Empire. Um, but then we should also talk about the Eastern Roman Empire, sometimes called the Byzantine Empire, which goes from 395 CE to 1453 when Constantinople is conquered by the Ottomans. And so that's, think, all the kind of Eastern Mediterranean, right? So, you know, Greece, certainly, but we're um, talking about what's now Turkey. Um, we're talking about it, you know, it's stretched down through the Levant. So kind of what's today a little bit like Syria, Lebanon for a while. Um, so that was all the Eastern Roman Empire. Um, one that you might not think of so much, and it's also just a little bit tangentially to the part of the world we're interested in, is the Frankish Empire, or really what I'm going to call Charlemagne's Empire. So Charlemagne, the great uh, early medieval king, the greatest early medieval king of Europe, um, and his, the empire that he founded lasted from about 800 to about 888. You know, the dates are a little fuzzy, but um, that's... Uh, that's roughly the time we're talking about. And his empire, which was a pretty loose empire compared to some of these other ones, it really only touched um, of the places we're interested in, kind of what's now the Czech Republic and Slovenia. Oh, that I, ben, that I, that I didn't know. So uh, when I saw this list, I was like, mm, okay, who, who, what's, what's this all about? So, yeah. Um, so, I mean, and, and the reason I, I listed is it actually, it, it, it connects in some ways to the next one, which is more important, and that's the Holy Roman Empire. Some historians say the Holy Roman Empire is the same and grows out of Charlemagne's empire, and we'll leave that debate aside for right now. But the Holy Roman Empire famously, as Voltaire said, was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire, but uh, you gotta count it because it was this loose collection of principalities and archbishoprics, uh, kingdom here or there, dukedoms, all this kind of stuff loosely held together, um, lasted a very long time, 962 until 1806. And it really, you know, embraces most of what we would consider Central Europe, even went on down into Northern Italy, in fact. But of the kind of parts of the world we're talking about, um, Slovenia, the Czech lands, and a bit of what's today Western Poland were within the Holy Roman Empire, this great uh, medieval and then into the modern age collection of different states in kind of the central part of Europe. Then another big boy is, of course, the Ottoman Empire, which you cannot talk about southeastern Europe in particular without mentioning the Ottoman Empire. And that's from, in this part of the world, it's from the sort of later 1300s. Of course, the Ottomans have longer history within Anatolia, within what's today Turkey, but they start coming up through Southeastern Europe in the 1300s, and that lasts till 1922. And Andrew, like, what are the kind of typical countries we would associate with the Ottoman Empire? Yeah, so, I mean, if you, you know, when anyone uses the term Balkans, that's going to be, that's like, that's just part of, for me, part of the, the, you know, if it's Balkan, it's like, okay, that was under Ottoman. So we're talking, let's say, most of the former Yugoslav countries, and it doesn't mean like the entire country as it is now was necessarily under 
the Ottomans, for example, parts of Croatia were, and definitely parts of Croatia were not, but we've got like Serbia, Bosnia, um, uh, Macedonia, Albania, uh, Greece, uh, Bulgaria. Um, mm -hmm. Those are all either Western Balkans or in some cases, Eastern Balkans. And, um, and we've, you've got parts of Hungary and parts of Romania under the Ottoman. I don't know. For me, I think kind of the Ottoman empire would be the, yeah, like that or the Habsburgs are really the, the two empires, I think, that shaped shaped these countries the most or shaped this mm -hmm. area the most. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that is a fair, a fair characterization. Um, now, another sort of small empire that actually overlaps a bit in, chronologically with the Ottoman Empire and some of these other ones is the Venetian Empire. Um, you might not think Venice and Eastern Europe, but yes, there's definitely a Venetian imprint. And it, it goes, you know, 1200s, various points, depends on when the territory becomes a Venetian colony, up to 1797, when Venice as, a, as an independent state ends. But this was a maritime, mercantile, Kind of empire that has quite a big stretch like where all does this stretch to andrew so yeah i mean i see the venetian empire all the time i'm in, I'm in croatia in fact hey i'm in Koper, and mm -hmm. the you know Koper was uh Koper and all the the few little places on the what is currently the slovenian coastline that was all under under venice so you've got uh, e uh the whole istria region which mostly in croatia now you've got the dalmatian coast uh, even some places in Montenegro, like uh, Kotor, you had uh, under them. So you, it, like back in the days, parts of Montenegro were independent in the highlands. All the little tribes were like the Turks and the, and the Venetians didn't bother going up there. Um, but you had to co some coastal cities under uh, Venice. And then you had a few places uh, under the Ottomans in, in, in Montenegro. So they, and they overlap, of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then even um, what I think is interesting is that you find relatively far-flung aspects of the Venetian Empire, like Cyprus, Rhodes, so things which are, you know, associated now with Greek civilization, but kind of Eastern Mediterranean, uh, were at one point or another under Venice, so uh, important to kind of throw them into the mix. Um, now, the next big boy, and this is I mean, one close to my heart because I wrote a book about them, and that is the Habsburgs. So the most important family in European history, the greatest dynasty in European history, the Habsburgs, um, of course, ruled in Spain for a while, too. But we really think of them as ruling from Vienna or at certain points from Prague. But they're, even though their dates are longer than this, in this part of the world, particularly the more eastern bits, they ruled from 1526 all the way up to 1918. Yeah, but this is like for me, like what what's classical Central Europe, you know? Then that's just you can see their their imprints uh, and their infrastructure they built and their architecture uh, all all over Central Europe. So I always kind of just think like, hey, if the Habsburgs rule, if the Habsburgs ruled whatever area longer than let's say the Ottomans did. That's almost like a, when we were talking about the litmus test uh, last mm. week. That's mm -hmm. almost like, yeah, okay, then it's central. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. And so uh, southern Poland, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Hungary, 
um, what's now Transylvania, or it's Transylvania now, part of Romania. Uh, but even then down, I mean, Northern Serbia was Habsburg, of course, Croatia, Slovenia, Bosnia eventually became Habsburg um, for 1878. Uh, so they, they had quite a reach um, in this part of the world. Yeah, and if you like, if you're in Sarajevo, you could just there's the you know you're walking down the main street, and it's just all of a sudden that the Ottoman the Ottoman uh, ends, and all of a sudden it's uh, it's late 19th century Habsburgs uh, architecture there. Totally. So it's it's a really it, it's a really easy thing to see in a city like that. But if you look at Bosnia as a whole, you'll in, in you just look at the dates and say, okay, yeah, well, Ottomans spent a lot more time here than the Habsburgs did. And so the whole vibe of, of Bosnia certainly feels more Ottoman than it does Habsburg. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but what a great example of where empires meet, right? Is that yeah. right there on that street in Sarajevo? Um, the next big one is Tsarist Russia, or the Russian Empire, um, roughly 1721 until 1917 when it, uh, the Romanovs fall and the, the consequence partly of the Bolshevik, Bolshevik Revolution in World War I. Uh, and of course, this is, the Russian Empire is huge, but the bits we're talking about are what? Um, that would be, well, Ru Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, the Baltic countries, um, Georgia, and I believe Eastern Turkey because they had like cars and mm -hmm. so, and I don't I don't to be honest I don't know their full reach but part of part of Eastern Turkey which is something I actually really didn't know about till I started reading about cars because it's a just a place I'm interested in, in going to and I didn't realize that that was that was Tsarist Russia up until mm -hmm. the end of the First World War. Yeah, no, but so they definitely like Russia is not just Russia. Definitely, you know. Um, uh, overlaps to some of these other Eastern Slavic countries, but then even down into the Caucasus and that kind of stuff. So yeah, yeah. definitely Tsarist Russia is, you know, you want to make, you, you want to make a distinction between that uh, and Soviet empire, which you'll, mm -hmm. you'll, you'll talk about because some people might just think, Oh, Russia and uh, the, that, you know, a Soviet empire. And it's quite different. Yeah, definitely. So then the next empire didn't last very long, thank goodness. And that's the Nazi third Reich, right? Which 1938, to 1945, we all have kind of an idea probably of, of what this was, but, um, and some of its effects, which we'll talk about, but it's important to, to consider because it, the Third Reich isn't just Germany, right? It, it actually has an important influence, a terrible one for the most part, on some of these countries in its immediate orbit uh, geographically, but then even like further east. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. I when I was thinking of all the empires, like I didn't think about Third Reich, maybe because I didn't want to think of them as an empire. Uh, right? Yeah. Um, thankfully, they were not a thousand-year empire as as Hitler uh, envisioned. And then, so the last one also didn't last quite as long, but um, has certainly had an influence, and that's the Soviet Empire. So the Soviet Union, which you can date roughly to 1917. Um, until then 1991, um, it embraces bits of what were the uh, Tsarist Russia and the Russian Empire, but then it also actually conquers new countries after World War II, for example. Yeah, you've got, well, you've got then all of Central Asia mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's in there and the rest of the Caucasus, you have Armenia and Azerbaijan. So Soviet Empire was was 15 different countries. I mean, now we have 15 different countries out of that, which, I mean, think about it, that's that's a lot. <laughs> mm. 
um, uh, and and quite varied too. So um, uh, you've got the the Baltics, Ukraine, Russia, Belarus. I kind of put those all together. Um, I mean, obviously they're different countries. Uh, Moldova, the three uh, the three countries in the Caucasus, and then the five different stands in Central Asia. Right, and then after World War II, the Soviets essentially effectively conquer countries like Poland, Czechoslovakia at that time, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria. Um, so they're also part of that empire. Yeah, they're definitely in that sphere, the, the, the Warsaw Pact, which is, which is important to mention that that's quite different than Yugoslavia. And mm-hmm. even Albania, which Albania was just kind of off on its own, <laughs> on its yeah, own exactly. communist uh, uh, deal. But um, that's the big thing. And I know, I know it, it comes up a lot uh, when I have guests over here. And I know it's a thing that anyone who, regardless if they think of themselves as Yugoslavs or whatever, Croatians or Slovenians or Serbs or whatever, they really don't like that whole like, what, you know, what, you're not, you weren't part of the Soviet empire mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember there's actually a film writer, uh, I want to say it was like, n- maybe not the New Yorker, but some New York paper, and he had written something because there's a Slovenian film fest going on, and he mentioned about how Slovenia was part of the Soviet Union. <laughs> I wrote him like that minute, and mm-hmm. you know, he apologized because he just didn't know, and I was like, man, like you're writing, you know, like you know enough to write about Slovenian film, which is kind of very obscure, mm-hmm. uh, and, but then you just fall into this classic like, you know, uh, uh, hey, they must have been part of the Soviet Empire. Mm. So I was like, uh, so yeah, I see that from I see that from time to time. But that's a very clear distinction between those two. And of course, that's a topic for a different episode. Yeah, yeah. No, I say I obviously share the same frustration as you do. Though I've, that like, okay, people get it straight. Um, but so now I want to talk about what are some of the influences of these different empires historically? And that's a huge topic, right? I mean, we could do many episodes. We could write a book on that. Who knows? Maybe we will someday. But um, so I'm just going to, for a couple different kinds of influences, I'm just going to zoom in on one or two things. And Andrew's going to talk about some things too. So we will not pretend to be exhaustive on these, the influences of these empires historically, but just highlighting a few things. Um, culturally, some big influence. I think, in fact, the biggest influence is the Roman Empire, right? Like, none of these empires has had a bigger cultural influence on the development of European and Western civilization than the Roman Empire. It's still a bedrock of so much of our civilization and culture, right? I mean, just like Christianity uh, becomes the state religion of the Roman Empire in the fourth century. And then that culture is associated with the Roman alphabet. It's associated with intellectual trends, um, you know, with the Pope based in Rome that that spread throughout Europe, like theology, um, philosophy, all these things then go through all throughout Europe. But then just even the artistic stuff, right? Like, uh, the uh, heritage of Roman art uh, is spread all throughout the kind of former areas where it existed, but then even uh, thanks to like the Renaissance and kind of the neoclassical interests, you get just like Roman style becomes something all throughout Europe, including 
places in Central and Eastern Europe where the Roman Empire never actually ruled, right? So um, the Roman Empire is just like the the soil out of which so much of Western culture grew is hugely important. Now, something that a lot of people don't pay that much attention to, and even I, you know, I'm, I'm no expert, but is also the Eastern Roman Empire. Like that is really important too, and has had a major cultural development, particularly on the places in Eastern Europe, fittingly, um, where roughly the that belonged to the Byzantine Empire or were kind of in its orbit. So again, the Eastern form of Christianity, so Orthodoxy, is associated with the that Eastern Roman Empire, ultimately. Um, you So that, that translates to, of course, the religious differences in that part of Europe. Um, you get alphabets that come from there. So of course, you know, the Greek alphabet is in Greece, but the different like Cyrillic ultimately ties back to Orthodoxy, which then ties back to the Eastern Roman Empire. So that's um, another kind of lasting cultural influence. Another thing that I think is really important to, to keep in mind is because you do have these this division in the Roman Empire, East and West, and that the East just has a slightly different trajectory than developments in the West. So the East doesn't have things um, like uh, the kind of Carolingian Renaissance around the 800s when you get a little bubbling of uh, you know, uh, light and uh, stability. You don't have that. You don't have then the proper kind of Renaissance. You don't really have the Enlightenment. Um, these things which happen in the West, it, it doesn't look like that in the East because there's just a different kind of cultural heritage and cultural trajectory that comes out of the Byzantine Empire even after the Byzantine Empire was gone. I was just going to say, you know, for the alphabet, probably everyone's mm. thinking, oh, yeah, Cyrillic alphabet. But there's there's other alphabets, too, that that came out of that. Like we've got Glagolica, which mm. you, you, you doesn't isn't used anymore, but you could still find traces of it in different places in Croatia. And there's another one, and I don't know the official name of it, but it was like it was what certain people used in Bosnia. And I didn't I didn't know about it until maybe like a. 10 years ago at, at a museum mm. when there was a book written in that. So um, it's actually more than just Cyrillic. And even Cyrillic, of course, is um, not exactly the same. So mm -hmm. Serbian Cyrillic has some characters that, uh, that you know, Russian Cyrillic, I, I know Russian Cyrillic, and then I would look at other Bulgaria and Serbia and see some characters that I don't recognize. So um, um, yeah, so those, those monks that, um, that uh, created the alphabet, they they did more than just one. Totally, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, as you're talking, just another thing that I thought of, which is super important for the cultural influence, is Roman law, right? Like Roman law is still the, today the basis in many ways of the legal systems of a lot of continental European countries, but even for the kind of Anglo-Saxon or Germanic countries that have a different, uh, somewhat different legal tradition, they still are bouncing off in some ways of Roman law. And that's just different where the Eastern Roman Empire and the Byzantine Empire lasted because you don't have the same legal basis for society. Um, things just different, developed somewhat differently. And that connects to the next like category of influences I was going to talk about is political influences. Again, you could say a lot of different stuff here. Just to zoom in on two different things. 
two different empires. One is the Habsburgs. And the, the specific example that I will mention of the um, historical influence of these empires is there's been some research done that countries that were ruled in the Habsburg Empire are today still better governed than nearby countries that weren't. So for example, there's been research done in like Slovenia and Croatia showing how certain aspects of government are better there than in Serbia, which most of Serbia was not ruled by the Habsburgs, right? Um, uh, places in like Ukraine also, which were under Habsburg administration, um, you can hop over to the parts that were under the Tsarist empire and the bits in Ukraine that were under the Habsburgs will have a bit stronger like rule of law, for example, better bureaucracies. You might think, okay, this is super boring bureaucracy, but actually it's really important because the Habsburgs, that's one reason why um, they managed to uh, rule effectively for a very long time is they believed in uh, an effective bureaucracy that could actually manage the state in a kind of uh, logical and rational way. And they put those structures in place there where if you go farther east, the structures for that kind of thing were not nearly as um, rational or stable. So that Habsburg Empire actually helps explain why some countries in Europe today are a bit better governed than, say, their eastern neighbors. Yeah, I think you could probably look at um, uh, those indexes like quality of life, of life, um, I don't want to just say GDP, but you know, if you're looking, if you're looking at, I was just reading a discussion on that just yesterday about, hey, you know, you know, is Slovenia the most like well-off um, uh, Slavic country? You know, and mm -hmm. it was talking about base. I mean, and it was you know, in the discussion was Czech Czech Republic uh, and Poland, Slovakia, and and Slovenia, mm -hmm. and it and it it's not really surprising that like those Slavic countries are going to be in the discussion for who's better off and median income and, and, and quality of life and uh, mm. peace index. And there's so many of these different indexes. Um, but if you look at it for Central and Eastern Europe, it's, it's usually those like four countries uh, that are, you know, somewhere between one and four on the list mm -hmm. uh, and much higher up than um, things further east or Ukraine or Russia, places like that. Um, the other thing too that I would, that the way I look at the Habsburgs, just not from, not from uh, studying anything, just from just my observations of going to these countries is it seemed like they were more like landlords and managers. Uh, and of course, and I think you'll get into infrastructure later, but you know, like, hey, well, let's build infrastructure, uh, you know, because that you know, we need to connect the empire, it's good for business, things like that, more so than other empires, which seem to me more like tyrants and more like, okay, let's, 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 let's look at every aspect of all of our subjects, you know, and kind of control them. And I think the Habsburg seemed to be more like, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna do, you know, we're gonna have good managers in different in in our different countries or these different cities or these different well they weren't countries at that point but just different territories and manage things well like you would kind of if you're a business more so than like what people think of oh being under an empire and everything's going to be oppressive mm -hmm. yeah totally and and you know i won't go too too much into the like deeper historical stuff on this but one reason is like 
um, in the Habsburg monarchy, you're supposed to have it's mandated to have like universal primary education already in kind of the middle later 1700s, um, which you don't have then in the other empires farther east, like the Ottoman Empire, the Tsarist Empire. So you're just having more people educated, which means you have a kind of uh, more um, open, progressive, stable, uh, rational society um, uh, that comes along with that. Um, and so, yeah, infrastructure and and good management that I think goes along with uh, education to a certain extent. And it's it, the, con uh, the contrast with the Tsarist Empire is interesting because unfortunately, still today, the places that were under the Tsarist Empire, and then also in many cases under the Soviet Empire, like they are not secure democracies. I mean, you can think of Belarus, right? You can think of, of course, Russia, but even you know places like Armenia, Azerbaijan, that stuff. And then you go further uh, east, of course, into Central Asia. Like these are places where, um, like, as a traveler, you're probably fine, but you know you don't want to get thrown in jail there, right? You don't even want to, you don't want to talk openly about those regimes and criticize them because the rule of law is just not so secure. And that is partly also uh, a legacy of the, the empire that was there and the kind of the nature of the governance in that place. Yep. Um, so next big category, uh, this is a little bit, stuff I'm gonna mention here is also kind of a downer, a little bit like my last example, but so social. What are some of the historical social influences of these empires? And the downer one I'm going to mention is the demographic consequences of the Third Reich, right? Of course, genocide, certainly the Jewish population, but then the other persecuted populations, including the Roma um, in Central and Eastern Europe that the Nazis sought to uh, exterminate. Um, the, and the influence now is, of course, that many of these countries in Central and Eastern Europe, their demographics just look dramatically different today and even post-1945 than they did pre-1938, right? I mean, you had very large Jewish populations in places like Poland, Belarus, Ukraine, even to a certain extent in kind of uh, Czech lands, Hungary. Um, and now, you know, those are mostly gone, right? Um, and then population movements is another aspect of this because another thing you had in places like what's, you know, today the borders of Poland, but in Czechoslovakia, uh, even in Hungary and what's today Romania, you had significant German populations because the Germans spread all throughout this and not just during the Third Reich, but in the centuries preceding, you had, you had these um, pockets of German settlement going east for hundreds of years, but in many cases, the German populations were then pushed out after the end of World War to partly in reaction to uh, you know the the monstrosities of the Hitler regime. So like uh, Czechoslovakia lost a third of its population, which was German, and they were pushed out uh, in the late 1940s. So really, uh, the Third Reich and its its atrocities changed just the face of the society in these places in so many ways. Also on the topic though of population movements, another interesting one is the Ottoman Empire, right? Like the Ottoman Empire was really diverse because the Ottomans didn't care that much 
whether you were one flavor or another of Christian, whether you were Jewish, whether you were one flavor or another of Muslim, as long as you paid your taxes, right? So you had, uh, in the Ottoman Empire, you had different religions, ethnic groups living shoulder to shoulder, and it was fine. But then, after the Ottoman Empire fell in 1922, you have big population movements again. And, and the thing that I think is interesting, because Andrew and I won't talk that much about Turkey on this podcast. Some, I think we will. Um, but the what is now considered Europe sort of moved west because lots of coastal Turkey was actually populated by Greeks until the 19, you know, the, the, up until about 1922 in the quote, population exchanges. Um, so a lot of coastal Turkey would have been considered Europe until then, because it was a Greek population, which, you know, had its connections to the rest of Europe, but they were, you know, exchanged with Turkey's population in what's today Greece. And so kind of the boundaries of Europe changed in addition to the actual, uh, like demographics of these societies. So just how the populations change pretty dramatically with these empires is one of the kind of social influences we can talk about. Yeah, and, and one thing I'll add to that is, you know, one of the reasons why the the US in the 20th century got so so powerful was because we had the brain drain from the east. Mm. So we get, you know, uh, so so many so many smart intelligent people that uh, are no longer wanted there and we, you know, hey, come mm. on over here. Uh, that's what happened uh, actually uh, during the Ottoman Empire because the all the Jews in Spain had to had to get out. And so the, you know, that was a nice gain for the Ottomans. If you go to Sarajevo, you can um, you can see one of the two original versions, the Hadaga there. Um, and you can really see it, like how much, like, you know, at that point, you know, hey, Muslims and Jews, hey, let's come on down. We've got, we're going to have some, we're going to have some, uh, you know, uh, brain, brain drain coming our way uh, on that. And that certainly helped the Ottomans at that point. Yeah, because I mean, as you said, they 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 were more in they were more inclusive. It was like, hey, you don't have to, you know, if you, if you want to if you want to if you want to switch to Islam, then you then it's good for some tax breaks. But uh, you know, certainly you had uh, uh, Christian faiths and Jewish faith there, and that was that was fine. Yes, a great point, and you know, made also me think about you could talk about the the demographics uh, shifts even with the Soviet empire, because then you get the exiles, right? Like um, Poles who left after kind of the um, uh, uprising in the 1950s, Hungarians who left after the Hungarian attempted revolution in 1956, Czechs, Czechs and Slovaks who left after the Prague Spring in 1968. And, you know, those people went uh, to the West, whether parts of Europe or North America, and they were some of the best and brightest, right? Um, so they, the fact that they left, um, changed the way those countries developed and they left because of the actions of the Soviet empire. So that stuff's recent. I mean, I, I bet, you know, listeners might even know people who kind of fled uh, the Soviet crackdowns in some of these countries and settled in say North America or the UK or something like that. Well, Ben, funny, funny, you should mention that, but yeah, I, I actually have a good friend in San Diego and I didn't know this until maybe, I don't know, 10 years ago when we were just having beers and he was telling me like, you know, oh yeah, my my dad 
you know, was part of the uh, revolution in Hungary. And I was like, hmm. what? And, you know, and it was like, oh, okay, well, how did he, I mean, he, he literally, um, you know, swam, swam across the, the, the river to get into to Austria. And it took him quite some time, but eventually made it to North America. But, you know, I'm just thinking, you know, so many, so many people involved in that revolution obviously didn't get to swim across the river. So, you know, it's right. like that would be very easily like, oh, I might not have never met Steve because if his dad would have been executed, well, you know, like so many, it's like, you know, that there'd be, there wouldn't be the rest of the generation. And it was really like, wow, that's like, I don't know. I, that was the first person I met who, you know, had that kind of, you know, story. So it was like, yeah, his, his, his dad was, was part of that and got out. And I've heard stories, actually I had a friend from, uh, in Seattle who was, uh, Czech and she, she, she ended up crawling out of, um, over near Lake Bled. She, she crawled out of Yugoslavia, but now part of Slovenia, uh, in, into Austria. And it was in 1989. So it was like, of course, she didn't have the crystal ball that everything was going to come crashing down really soon, but she was in tourism. So she was always in, she was in Yugoslavia a lot. And that was her like, okay, I'm getting, I'm getting out of here. I'm not going back to Czechoslovakia. And, and she went through, uh, through the, over the mountains in, in Slovenia and into, into Austria and escaped. So, um, yeah, hmm. it's, it's recent history. Totally, yeah, it's, that's <laughs> pretty amazing um, that she got out in 1989, just before it all kind of changed. She's like, can um, I get back in? Because this Velvet Revolution right. thing's looking pretty good now. Yeah, it sounds okay. Um, so then the last category I was going to mention for like some of the economic historical influences. I'll talk about one example, which is also recent, then one example, which is more distant. And the more recent example is with the Soviet empire. Um, of course, you think of communism, right? Yes. And communism dramatically changed the economies in the countries where it held sway. But it's not always for the bad, right? Like a lot of the places that were part of the Soviet empire um, were industrialized thanks to the Soviets because they were extremely agricultural or predominantly agricultural well into the 20th century. But the Soviets impose this particular model of industrialization, which actually for a time did lift living standards quite dramatically, you know, modernized many facets of life and kind of dragged some of these more um, agricultural societies like say Bulgaria and Romania dragged them uh, quite quickly into a uh, more developed economic model of heavy industry. Okay, so then that's the downside, right? Is that the Soviets pursued this um, particular model of industry, which was big like smokestack industries for the most part. And like these factory towns were literally you see this more in Russia than than in kind of the European parts we're talking about, but like they're like single industry towns, right? They were built around one gigantic factory, which of course you know had a huge uh, economic impact on those areas. But then even when the when communism fell, some of these towns are still kind of suffering from that. So you know the the takeaway for me on this is that the Soviet Empire modernized some places. So it's not like communism was all bad, though that modernization certainly came with some costs of having a particular 
kind of industrialization imposed on them and you know brought to them, which um, heavily polluting and kind of heavy industry, which is now struggling in so many ways to adapt to the 21st century, these places that were industrialized along that model. Yeah, actually, you know, I, in the, I'm not talking like Russia or Ukraine, but certainly a lot of places in Southeast Europe and, and Central Europe, I think it's far less industrial than Western Europe is. And I think everyone mm -hmm. thinks, oh, okay, well, the communism, they had, they, they built all these uh, big industries and industrial towns and and they had their five-year plans and stuff like that. But you know, anytime I'm traveling in in Western Europe, I just I notice so much more industry there now. I think a lot of the industry that was made in the communist times is all pretty much closed for good. Um, and then you could see the impact of that is like, okay, well now now this factory's closed, so the whole town around it is pretty much a ghost town, uh, which which isn't good. But um, certainly in Southeast Europe and ex-Yugoslavia, it's harder to go and find these places that are going to fit the image in your mind of like, oh, big industrial uh, fortifications and factories in, in Eastern Europe, because the, most of that doesn't, doesn't exist anymore. Mm, yeah. And then the other just economic example of kind of a, a legacy is I want to get a bit, give a bit of love to the Venetian Empire, because it's, it's a little, it's kind of the diminutive one of the ones we're talking about. Um, and so the Venetian Empire, as I mentioned, was this mercantile maritime empire in the Adriatic and then the Eastern Mediterranean for a few centuries in the late Middle Ages and then into the early modern period. Um, and uh, the interesting thing to me about this is, you know, Venice thrived when the bulk of the Western world's commerce was based on the Mediterranean. But what happens after 1492? Well, uh, the bulk of commerce shifts to the Atlantic and Venice starts its long decline. The weird upside to this, and again, the kind of the influences and legacy, is that as Venice starts its long decline, as commerce shifts across the Atlantic, then these towns, which were kind of the you know, hubs of some of this Venetian mercantile empire, they essentially just get preserved in time, like just like pickled, right? Yeah. Uh, from in some ways their heyday. So, you know, uh, I can think of, you know, really close to Andrew, like Piran, this, the Slovenian town of Piran is like this great like example of what was once a thriving kind of little Northern Adriatic um, mercantile hub from the salt industry. But you could go all the way down the Adriatic and talk about, Towns like Far and Cortula, um, you can go f even farther then and and talk about places like Rhodes in Greece and Nafplio in Greece. That you know they were once quite prosperous and connected to this empire that was all over the Eastern Mediterranean. But then, as as Venice starts unraveling, these places are just sort of left to themselves, and they just kind of uh, you know there are are gathering dust. But in a way. For tourists now, that's great because they were sort of left behind and forgotten in some ways. Yeah, no, they they are that they, they they I I would guess that that if you looked at all all towns and cities in general, that the ones under Venice probably look the closest to how they did back then. Mm -hmm. uh, the the only thing the a few things they've done is now probably and that was with after the um, Habsburgs. 
uh, took over a lot of those Venetian lands is just some of these places that were islands got, they filled in so they were no longer islands, but they were now attached to the to the actual coast. So, Copra, uh, where I live, was was an island. Isola, which is the town right next to us, which means island in Italian, that's that was also filled in. Rovine, which is you know arguably the the nicest coastal mm. town in Croatia, in 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 the Istria region. Um, you could just look at a map and say, oh yeah, that looks like this little island and now it's like attached to the land. So they kind of filled those in. But other than that, it really, they've really kept their, their character. Uh, probably because they didn't try to, the, the, these, 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 these coastal towns were too small to like the old towns to build anything inside of it. So they couldn't just say, hey, well now we'll build a bunch of factories here or whatever. So mm -hmm. um, they, they, they are really kind of like you said, pickled, preserved. Yeah. So Ben, I think it, at this point, it's we'll take a break from the Empire's talk, and in the next episode, we will discuss how all of this, what all of this means for the traveler going to these places that were all were under these different empires that we've been discussing. Does that sound good? Yep. All right. So I want to I want to end our episode today just with some personal reflections on the fact of traveling later in life or starting to travel later in life. And I know a lot of people travel, um, you know, teenage years or early twenties, people do a study abroad or they take, you know, Australians, they take half a year or a whole year off and just go travel and see things. I, I just somehow waited. It just turned out that I, I waited till I was 30 to go to go travel. And I know that I had a different experience than if I was, you know, 19 or 20 going to travel. And one of the things that I noticed uh, quite quickly into my travels was I wasn't so obsessed with the cost of things and money and the cheap beer, you know, <laughs> I used to hit these hostels uh, and you're meeting other travelers and it's always seems like you don't need to go even look at the price of beer because someone's gonna bring that up, you know, like, oh my God, can you believe how cheap this is and that is. Um, and one of the one of the stories I have that was really funny, because I, I I was in Saint Petersburg, and there were quite a few like younger Australians there, is this conversation they had of like, oh well I'm not going to go to the Hermitage that's like ten dollars or whatever it was back that that point, uh, it's like you know it's like sorry like I don't have that in my budget or whatever and I was thinking, okay how did you how did you fly from Australia to Europe or Russia, like you have the money to fly over here, you for sure you've got the money to spend at least six months because all the Aussies, you know, go for a long period of time. But you don't have 10 bucks to see the Hermitage like what, what's the point of kind of going to St. Petersburg, if you can't fork out 10 bucks to see that and I just thought yeah okay you know stop stop drinking beer for a couple of days or, or even better yet just like you know can't your mom send you like 10 bucks so you can go see the Hermitage? I just like thought it was so bizarre that, you know, people would think like that's just too much money uh, to see. And I just had a very different outlook on, on my money. In fact, I, I met this one Australian, he put it the best because he worked in, he worked in some of the mines in the outback uh, hmm. to save money to go travel. And he was like, I worked too hard 
making this money to not enjoy spending it. And I always think like that is a great philosophy of like, yeah, like it's not like, oh my God, I have to part with the five bucks here and I didn't really want to. It's like, man, I worked hard for this money. I want to, I want to enjoy it. So that was one of those just obvious things um, when I started traveling and, and, and generally meeting younger travelers was how they looked at money or costs or, you know, how impressed they were over the cheapness of beer. And alcohol. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, it was also, of course, you know, when you're 30, you're just a more mature person. Uh, so you're probably open to more enriching experiences. By the time I was 30, I, I had a lot, I had a lot more outgoing personality. And, hmm. you know, if you're, if you're a shy, you know, you're going to have a very different travel experience, especially if you're going to go for six months. So I was really personally glad to meet people and talk with people. And I wasn't shy about just, hey, you know, this is what I read about your history or this city or whatever, and, and start off conversations with, with that. Um, and just, you know, wanting to talk with locals, regardless of language barriers. And that was something I noticed, like, I wouldn't have had that same experience if I was 20 and a little bit more insulated and maybe not as sure of myself to have these kind of conversations with people and and to go along with that the older you are the the more the more interested i was in backstories and histories of all these places i was going to so when i'm writing writing my list of different countries and putting you know here's what i want to see it wasn't just about ticking things off of some kind of bucket list which I'm not even sure I had that, that the concept of that uh, 21 years ago, but just really wanting to know more and reading more. So when I went to places, I could have a conversation or I can go to the museum and understand things more because I don't, it's not like, oh, I don't know anything about Hungary and Budapest. So hmm. what is all this, you know, what does everything mean at this museum? I remember the history museum in, in Budapest on the on the Buddha side. That was definitely one of my probably three or four most impressive museums I went to on my first time traveling. I was like, wow. And but you know, it it really helped that I that I bothered to get myself up to date on something about their history there. And I think once again that it would have been really difficult to to you know have the same experience. If I was just like, oh, hey, I just showed up in country X. Oh, what's going on here? And uh, what happened 10 years ago when the Berlin Wall fell? You know, uh, I just would would hate to like, you know, miss out and feel like, you know, like I didn't even bother doing my my homework before I showed mm -hmm. up per se. Um, I think maybe that's maybe just me more personal, uh, you know my personality wise is not wanting to feel like I'm a complete idiot and I don't know anything about where I'm at. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, another thing really was, you know, when, when you're 30, you, you, you've, you're at a point in your life where you, you either probably know what you want or you know what you don't want. And when you're huh. 20, you don't know this as much because, you know, you're like, hey, everything's coming at me. I'm everything's new. But I was I was at a place where I knew what I didn't want when I was when I was 30. And I was hoping that I was going to have some experience, something that would happen when I traveled that would make it easier for me to find a new path. Hmm. Um because I didn't want to, I didn't want to come home, uh, come back home and just like say, okay, that was nice. Now I'm just going back to the same routine. Um, 
I don't know, Ben, have you seen um, a movie called Walkabout, Australian movie called Walkabout? It's kind mm. of an art film from the 70s. No, I don't know it. Okay. Uh, Nicholas Rogue directed it. He did a lot of, mm. he did like Man Who Fell to Earth with David Bowie. He did a lot of mm-hmm. art house stuff. And, and in fact, I'm actually not, a, I'm not really a huge fan of him, but this movie is one of my favorite films. And it's about two uh, young brother and sister who basically get abandoned in the outback and they come across uh, Aborigine. And the three of them basically survive. Um, and the ending of it is kind of a, is, well, it's a bit of a downer because the Aboriginal boy dies but the two Mm. the two the two white uh, australians get back to civilization and at the very end of the movie the 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 girl and she was i don't know like 16 in the movie you see her later on in life and she's back to the the same suburbs the same life that uh that she that her family was at the beginning of the movie and to me it was terribly depressing because i thought wow i mean to, to I mean like i went traveling for six months this person like you know saw all this stuff in the outback somehow survived but then went back to the the same i don't know like i'd say like the same boring life the same routine that she, that she was already in and and i knew when i came back from traveling that okay this is what i don't want i do not want to come back and just say that was fun that was my six months now mm-hmm. everything going back to the routine it was like no i can't i can't kind of be the same person i was and i can't go back to the same life or anything like that um and so i made like a conscious effort to just say okay this is it now i've got to do something different i've got to be something different i have to let these six months of travel affect me and hmm. not just be like in my scrapbook and my photo book, if you understand. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, I admire that. Uh, that takes courage and, you know, to, especially to make that kind of leap in your thirties to, to make good on that kind of, I don't know, pledge is takes even more guts than if you do it in your twenties, I feel like. So that's, um, I think pretty inspirational. I would hope for maybe people who are listening who, you know, uh, think like, oh yeah, you know, let's shake it up. Well, it's it actually is doable. Yeah, I mean, it, you you can you know you can make a change, uh, you know, at, at different parts, and you you don't you don't exactly have to know how it's going to play out because obviously mm-hmm. when you're traveling, you don't know how it's going to play out. Because I I I think you know when I got back, I thought, well, gosh you know, what, what if I didn't like it? I mean, if I didn't like it, I probably wouldn't have been gone for six months, but it's like, hey, there was no guarantee that I was going to go travel and be like, find myself or find mm-hmm. that I really like traveling because it's, you know, it's that kind of lifestyle is not is not for everyone. But the one thing that I didn't realize so much later on, and this would be like the one downside of, of this, I think traveling later on is when, when I came back, it was very hard to relate to most of my friends because most mm-hmm. of my friends didn't travel. And I don't know if they totally understood what I went through. Um, I don't know if you can say, oh, it's like being converted to some religion or something like that. But it obviously can make a really large impact on your life. And what I realized is almost all the friendships I had, you know, up until I was 30, most of those you know, eventually fell apart or, you know, just became Mm. less and less important because I felt, hey, it's hard. It's hard for me. Maybe it's hard for them to understand me, but it's hard for me to understand now people who just kind of keep living the normal life, their normal routine. And like after, you know, what I saw or what I, you know, kind of described to them, 
just weren't that interested in, in, in trying it for themselves. And I was like, well, how, how can we relate anymore? So I think that was um, one of those things that was, was a difficult transition. And, and I probably ended up losing a lot of friends. And on, I guess on the other side, I probably ended up gaining some new friends because I started gravitating towards people who I could understand on the level of like, hey, we might be completely different people, but we both we both are travelers and that was like a stronger thing than like hey you and i both like baseball or we both have the same political views or we both like spicy food (laughs) yeah no i mean i think one of the takeaways that um i would hope people get from this is i've definitely run into people like on tours and stuff who didn't start traveling until much later than their 30s right who may be in their 50s or 60s and okay, so economic situations and family situations and that kind of stuff differ from person to person. But I, your example shows people like, it's never too late to start traveling, right? Um, and of course, I believe the sooner the better because of all the things it does for you as a human being, you know, mm-hmm. morally, cognitively, blah, blah, blah. But, um, you know, it's, you can always shake things up and never think, oh, you know, I missed out on these experiences when I was in my 20s or whatever, and it may be too late now, or just like, get out there and do it. Like, just go and, of course, you know, pandemic right now, but if when things normalize and and travel becomes easier once again, like, go and do it. The the barriers that you might think are in your head are, are not really significant barriers, probably, and you can easily surmount them. And I can say with near 100% certainty, you'll be totally glad you did, right? It, it, will, it will benefit you and you'll enjoy it in so many ways that, that just go for it. Exactly. You don't. You can't even conceive of all the ways it'll. It, mm-hmm. it can. It can benefit you. So what I'd like to do for um, next episode is I want to. I want to. For those of you who are like maybe had a similar situation to me, or like maybe you've just got into travel and now with the pandemic or with the with for whatever reason you're back at home, you're not traveling or you can't travel, is. Because I, I I got in a situation like okay I can't travel right now and I got back it's like okay I, I might not travel for a year what what can I do to kind of to kind of be in touch with my inner traveler or to kind of like I want to I know there's a bunch of people traveling like we're in the city I live in in Seattle obviously there's people visiting Seattle like I was visiting you know Warsaw and Budapest or whatever and it's like what are some ways to kind of get in touch with the travel scene when you're at home when you're at your own home and you're not traveling but you can get in touch with that kind of community and that spirit of of travel so next episode in addition to talking more about um, some of the empire things and how that uh, affects or how you can see those empires now as a traveler. Um, I'll go into a little bit more on some good ideas on kind of keeping the whole travel spirit alive, even when you're stuck at your boring home. Um, So until next time, I am Ben Curtis. I blog at benjamincurtis.me and you can find both of us at guide-collective.com. And I'm Andrew Vallone, and you could find me at Savor the Experience Tours. As Ben said, I'm also on the Guide Collective. So until next week, next episode, um, let's stay in touch and talk to you soon. Thanks for listening, everybody. Talk to you soon, Andrew.